Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike. We got Josh in the booth here with me. Hello. hello. And uh, no Tim today. Tim is uh, out and about getting some work done. Uh, but, you know, that that happens in the world we live in today. It's not always easy for all of us to get together. Josh just came back from Colorado where he spent time falling down mountains. Yeah, that would, that would be accurately describing it. People technically call it skiing. The people watched it, call it called it falling down a mountain. So... It is beautiful out there, but uh, it's nice to be back. You also can't really breathe too well when you walk around there. So it's yeah, it's high, it's elevation, right? Did you go running? I did. I did go running. I knew not you for, were gone running. Not for long periods of time, though. <laughs> no, very short segment. No, yeah, that is uh, that is some intense stuff. I mean, imagine just like imagine having to run a marathon at that height. Like, could someone even do that? They definitely could. I'm, I'm sure there's someone who has done it. I'm asking ridiculous, stupid questions, but I love snowboarding. Um, but I think that. You know, there's this, there's this kind of judgment thing where like skiers, like, oh, you snowboard. And uh, I feel sometimes you get looked down upon for that. I could, I could see that. Cause I think the snowboarders, at least they put the stereotype on themselves. The ones yeah. We're kind of like, oh yeah, bro, I snowboard dude. And everybody's got a boom box on their shoulders yeah, yeah, yeah. and <clears throat> yeah, I could, I could see that. So anyways, this has nothing to do with our episode today. Uh, we had a pretty cool guest on. We talked a little bit about not only the creation of the company, how far back it goes and, and the history they have, but also how they went and, and re-looked at the assets they had and, and what they were doing and how they wanted to reinvent the business and ended up doing that um, extremely successfully to to evolve into what they are now. And it looks like the future is really promising for them too. So it was really cool to, uh, to sit down with our guest and talk through that entire experience and how he looked at not only and obviously involved in, in primarily commercial real estate market, the market today, but how we're handling the whole COVID situation and what things are going to look like moving forward. Yeah. And uh, in case you guys don't know, our guest today is Don Castowitz in the title. But uh, he and his team, were, they were able to bring on like a bunch of different partners and get everybody kind of going in the same direction and developed a really, really strong business. So it's, uh, it's, it was a really interesting conversation. Uh, we are remote for this one. I think uh, Don was uh, out of Florida at the time, but uh, it was great talking to low him. Low altitude state. Good yeah. choice. Yeah. Low altitude state, plenty of air down there. But, it, you know, it was a great time talking with Don and I think you guys are going to enjoy this episode as well. So what with that? Appreciate y'all tuning in, and we will be right back. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that, live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believe in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Oldman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7-365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike. We've got Josh and Tim here in the studio with me. How are you guys doing today? Good, man. Can you hear me? Can you hear me loud and clear? Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. Maybe I'm just going to turn that down, though, so I don't have to listen to Josh all day. I don't know. It's what what happens when you have the power. 
Um, well, never going to start off on a lame joke. Well, Hopefully you know, that's my job. I'm here for the lame jokes. That's like all I have. Just tell us about where you're from. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but so today on the show, uh, really excited. We got Mr. Don Casto joining us. And Don is a partner at Casto. And prior to joining the organization in 1971, he was in the private practice of law in San Francisco, California. And he's also a graduate of Stanford University and Stanford Law School. And he holds a master's degree in natural resource law from George Washington University. Uh, he's actively involved in the company's leasing and development activities, as well as, uh, you know, some of his professional associations include membership in the California and Ohio Bar Associations, the Urban Land Institute, and the International Council of Shopping Centers. Uh, he's written a number of publications regarding retail commercial development, and he serves on the board of the Columbus Airport Authority, as well as numerous other civic endeavors. So we're really excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Don. Thanks. Happy to be here, Mike. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here and looking forward to learning a little more about uh, kind of your life, your career and, and some of the things you've been seeing going on in Columbus. But one of the first places we'd like to start is just get a little background on yourself. And right now you're out in Florida, right? We're down in Sarasota, yeah. Did you grow up here in Columbus? Was there, you know, connection here in Ohio? Uh, yes, I'm sort of like a Ukrainian peasant. I, I now live no more than four or five blocks away from where I, I grew up in Bexley. Uh, so I'm a Columbus native, was raised here, uh, was a lifer at Columbus Academy. I went there for 12 years uh, and um, then went out to the West Coast. And uh, that's sort of a, a long story. I'll try to make it uh, fairly short. Uh, but I was the eldest child of overprotective parents. And, you know, as a fairly naive 17-year-old, I vividly remember going to a friend's house before a swimming meet and seeing it. These are the college application you know, mm -hmm. days you know, we all remember. Uh, and seeing a, uh, a brochure for Stanford. I'd never heard of Stanford, didn't know anything about it, but the cover was uh, a picture, the classic picture of Palm Drive, you know, with the palm trees and the sunshine. And uh, I thought, you know, it looks pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I, I was focused, uh, you know, not on academics, uh, but on, uh, <laughs> on being where there is sunshine and women. The Columbus Academy at that time was strictly a male institution. So I had 12 years uh, with no girls and as far away from home as I could get. My parents were wonderful, but they were overprotective and I didn't want to be anywhere near near Columbus. And so Stanford seemed to fit that bill. I was so naive, I didn't realize that it was an academically good institution, nor that it was hard to get into. So I applied to Stanford and my safety school was Washington and Lee, which was a high school. And Stanford turned me down. Uh, and my academic career in high school was good, but not great, you know, a C student and freshman and sophomore year and then became an A student, but probably too little too late. So they told me they didn't want me. And uh, I went to Washington and Lee and was at that time, uh, it's now a much, much better school than it was then. It was a good school then, but now it's really a good school. And uh, it was a, you know, it was okay. You know, it was a, just a cultural misfit for me. It was a very Southern school. I'm a Yankee. Uh, it was all my fr my friends and, and classmates were either named Ambrose or Beauregard, and they were the fourth or the fifth, and, and uh, there were no women uh, anywhere within 500 or 300 miles or whatever. It was really interesting. And so so I just, uh, you know, it would have been okay if I had to stay there, but I was unhappy, and, and I decided, what the hell, I'll take another shot at Stanford. I had great academic record there, and uh, uh I was a reasonably good athlete in high school and a very good athlete in, at WNL. I was a good swimmer and a very, very good track runner. I had a lot of state of Virginia track records just in one year. So, 
So that was good. So I thought, well, that ought to qualify me to apply to Stanford again, but it was a long shot. Mm-hmm. And for, you know, $50 application fee and, and uh, write an essay, I thought, why not give it a shot? And much to my surprise, they, they accepted me. And it was clear to me, you know, as a naive, at that point, 18-year-old, that it must have been my athletic prowess that got me into Stanford. But, you know, so fast forward to uh, going to Stanford, you know, I, I arrived on campus and, and uh, my very first visit, I called up the track coach, you know, because I, I was sure that's why they took me, you know. And again, if you've, if you've read Unbroken, uh, the track coach for Louis Zamperini in that book was Peyton Jordan, who was a legendary track coach. And at that time, he was a track coach at Stanford. So the name meant nothing to me as an 18-year-old. So I went to visit uh, Peyton Jordan, the track coach, and, you know, said as a naive 18-year-old, said, well, lucky you, here I am. And he asked me what I ran, and I told him my times. It was at the 100-yard dash, which was my primary race. Uh, and I ran a 9.6, and, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, but uh, 9.6 yeah. is fast. Yeah, well, that's well, no, that's the hundred yard dash, not hundred meters. Now that okay. was you know, they, they changed. <laughs> okay, uh, but he told me, he said, well, he said, you know, he said, I coach the Olympic team, I have the entire Olympic team here, and they all run it in nine two. So he said, I, I recommend you focus on academics, which is what I did. <laughs> well, a humbling experience there. <laughs> that, that was my rather awkward start at, at Stanford, but I I was there for you know, the next three years and then for law school. And it was, it's a wonderful, wonderful institution. And it was great for me. So, so that's sort of how I got there. And, and, uh, you know, what drew me to law was, you know, typically it was, you know, I like puzzles and, and I wasn't, obviously I didn't major in, in anything that would qualify me for pre-med or engineering. And so law seemed like a, an appropriate fallback. It turns out that I really loved law school at Stanford. And subsequently, I didn't like the practice of law that much, you know, but, but I like learning and understanding law. So hope, hopefully that answers your question. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So as you reflect back on that experience, whether it was studying law or just spending time at Stanford around people who are academically elite is what I would assume. Do you reflect back on that time and, and, and see it as a pivotal moment and what helped create the foundation for what you would later to go on to, to achieve? Or did it just kind of seem like you know, another step along the way? No, I, I didn't float through school at all. I understood once I got there that this was an academically excellent institution. The culture was one that focused on academic excellence. And so, you know, you pretty quickly absorb that culture. So as an undergraduate, uh, you know, I really, really uh, focused on what I enjoyed doing and what I liked. Um, My father, you know, we had a little bit of a difference. He wanted me to study business courses, accounting. I thought this was a wonderful opportunity to become, I'm going to say a renaissance man, but to, you know, really have a a broader education. So I took a wide range of courses uh, that would be a classic liberal arts education. Uh, And... uh, no regrets there at all. It, it was a wonderful experience and good background for law school. Um, I always, I, I, I'm amused at the story because I, I, I was an English major, uh, which is pretty worthless now, but at the time, you know, uh, a lot of people were English majors. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I struggled 
to you know, break into the A category in my papers. You know, I'd write papers and I'd get B pluses or an A minus, but it was was never able to, you know, break into academic excellence. And I'd get comments back on my papers that, you know, you're prolix, you're wordy, you're verbose, you're using 50 cent words, you know, on and on and on. So fast forward to law school, same guy. Uh, I started writing papers in law school and they were back, come back, come back A plus. Hmm. And, and so all I realized, I, I hadn't changed myself. I just had to change my audience. And mm-hmm. so, so if you've, if you've ever, ever read a legal brief, you'll understand that 50 cent words are appreciated. So well, I think that's, I mean, that's a really interesting concept that applies outside of just papers, right? Like, you know, for people like entrepreneurs, business owners, anybody, right? Like sometimes you might have the right messaging, but the wrong audience that, I mean, that's a really, really important concept across not just paper writing, but business and everything else. I agree with that. Yeah. So you, you wrap up your time in law school and, and you're looking out and trying to figure out what you want to do next. And you said, you know, you eventually found you didn't enjoy actually practicing law. I'm assuming that you jumped right into that after you finished up your time at Stanford. Uh, no, uh, you have to sort of, uh, and this will be difficult for you're much younger than I am. It'll be difficult for you to understand Th- those were the years of the Vietnam war and the idea of planning your future. If you were at that time, 22 or three years old and trying to, you know, you, you were draftable. Okay? Mm-hmm. You, we, you guys don't even deal with the draft now. At that time, if I stopped going to school, I was draftable and, and uh, sent to Vietnam. So that was uh, unacceptable. And as a consequence of that, the typical law school uh, progression is that in your summertime, you go to work for a law firm, you're an intern or a clerk, you know, and then if you do well, you get a job offer. Well, uh, as a male at that age, that was a non-starter. So, you know, you couldn't even interview with a law firm. They, they, mm-hmm. they wanted to talk to somebody who was a veteran who had a 4 F deferment, who had a, a you know, handicap of some sort, or who was a woman. And if you were a 22-year-old male, that was, uh, you know, so, so as a consequence, uh, law school was interesting. It was challenging. I enjoyed it. And subsequently, I, I, what I really enjoyed was... Uh, water law. If you like puzzles, and I love puzzles and complexity, one of the most complicated and difficult forms of law is water law. And you, if you're on the East Coast here, you think of that as, as riparian rights and drainage. And you know, on the West Coast, well, if you've ever watched the movie Chinatown, you'll understand what water law is about. Land is worthless. Real estate is worthless west of the Mississippi, unless you have the water rights to go with it. Mm-hmm. And so I had a couple of courses and a couple of professors that I really liked, uh, and I, I became not an expert, certainly, but uh, an accomplished student of, of water and water resources law. And as a consequence, uh, one of my professors recommended me for a fellowship uh, to study water law at George Washington University, where they had a program, and it was the Army Corps of Engineers uh, sponsored the program. And the deal was that uh, you went and got a master's in water law, and then you worked for them for two years, which was fine. I needed a job. So <laughs> I went to Washington, uh, wrote my thesis, took a um, took the master's in law and had a wonderful time. And at the very tail end of that, you know, they called me in and said, you know, we have good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is that you don't owe us any money. You don't have to work for us for two years. I said, well, that's not good news. I wanted a job. I was looking forward to you know, practicing what I'd learned. And the bad news is that, you know, the deal was that we were going to get you a deferment for two more years and you weren't draftable and and that's out the window now because the war's heated up. So hmm. goodbye and good luck. And uh, and so, you know, with very short notice, I went back to Stanford and uh, 
and enrolled in a PhD program. And my wife had one more year to go to finish her law degree at Stanford. And so we wanted to be back there so she could finish up. She took her second year at Georgetown while I was doing my master's. And uh, I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll work on my PhD for a couple of years and hopefully the draft board will you know, grant me a 2S deferment. And there was no guarantee of that, but it was worth a shot anyway. And long story short, my father called up and, and of course, I'd been off the family payroll for a year. Mm-hmm. And the Corps of Engineers gave you a living stipend, paid your books and tuition and that sort of thing. And he asked me, he said, you know, I said, you're the very first person in our family ever to graduate from college. You're the first person certainly ever to get a graduate degree. You're the first person never to get a postgraduate degree. He said, I'm really proud of you. And he said, now you're getting a doctorate. He said, how long is that going to take? And I, you know, I didn't feel the hook being set. I said, well, maybe four years, three, you know, it depends on the thesis, you know. And he said, have you given any thought to how you're going to pay for it? And so that was, that was, that was the end of my, uh, my, uh, my doctoral uh, program. <laughs> so the good news was that I had uh an accomplished resume at that point in water law. And there was a very small firm in San Francisco that that was their exclusive practice. And so I went up to San Francisco and, and uh, became a young associate at that firm and uh, was sort of a go do whatever you do when, you know, when you're that young and that inexperienced, but it was, a, it was a way to start the practice of law. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the puzzles. I enjoyed working on the West coast. My wife, uh, uh, got a wonderful job with a very prestigious law firm. And so, you know, it was, it, we were living on Telegraph Hill in the lower reaches, you know, cold water, you know, second floor cold water walk up flat. But it was, you know, life was good. You're living in the city and, you know, what's not to like about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So is is at this point that your dad called you up, asked you how you're going to pay for that doctorate degree? Is that when you make your way <laughs> back to Columbus and Casto? Well, what happened there was uh, I was still practicing in San Francisco and my wife was practicing and we were very happy. Mm-hmm. And my father had, uh, number one, he always wanted me to come back, you know, and mm-hmm. he had some health issues and uh, basically called up and said, I don't know if I'm going to live two more years or 10 more years. It turns out he lived six more years, but uh, he said, you're the eldest son. We've got a, you know, modest business here that, you know, needs leadership and management and there's nobody other than me. And I don't know how long I'm going to be here. So time you headed back, back to Ohio. And, you know, and I think the quote is a John Lennon quote, that, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making plans for the future. You know, and, and that's sort of what happened to me. I, you know, my life plans, if I were planning it out, had nothing to do with going back to Columbus, Ohio and, and engaging in, in the practice of real estate. But that's what I did. And uh, at the time, it was, you know, it was hard. If Columbus in the early 1970s was not like it is now. Columbus is a very vibrant city now. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, it was less so. Uh, you know, there's just a couple of restaurants. There was no real, you know, activity. It was, it was moderately prosperous, but there was no real energy. And uh, compared to San Francisco, certainly. And uh, and so it was, it was a little tough putt and it was a tough adjustment. All the credit to my wife, who had grown up in Denver and lived in at Stanford in San Francisco, and was suddenly thrown into Columbus, Ohio. And it was an adjustment for her, but she dove right into it. And, and not, neither one of us have ever looked back. You know, so it's it, and it turns out in retrospect, one of the best things we ever did. But we didn't know it at the time. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. 
So you get back to Columbus and, and you're diving into real estate and obviously growing up around it, it's not like yeah. you're you're completely um, ignorant on the industry, but you've been spending time practicing law and focusing on law. What was that transition period like? I mean, do you reflect back on it and, and see it as difficult or think back and say, well, how am I going to take over the, the entire business in a matter of six years? Or was it just a natural progression and everything flowed pretty seamlessly? Well, let's talk a little bit about what the business was that I came back to. And yeah, I guess my expectation was that there was a business that was worth coming back to, that it was prosperous, moving forward, you know, growing. In fact, that wasn't the case. And it took me a couple of years. I'm a slow learner. It took me a couple of years to figure that out. Uh, but my father was having uh, health difficulties. He was also having marital difficulties. His partner, his, his, uh, my uncle, my paternal uncle uh, was had been active in the business, was becoming less active. And so the business was suffering from a lack of focus and management. Uh, The asset base were, at that time, uh, retail centers that had been built back in the 40s and early 50s. So they were 20, 25 years old. They were functionally obsolete. They'd been, you know, they just needed a lot of attention. So, So the foundation was, I won't say rotten, but it was, not very stable. Mm-hmm. And it took a couple of years to figure that out. And I figured out I've, if this business is going to go anywhere, I need to focus on stabilizing the foundation. And my cousin, Frank Benson Jr.'s son, came back a couple of years after I did. Very good guy. And, and uh, together, we spent a lot of time refocusing and stabilizing the foundation. And that really involved retenanting and physically remodeling all the existing shopping centers. There were probably eight or nine of them. And uh, became close friends with Dick Trott, who has since passed away. But Dick was the preeminent, most creative architect in Columbus at the time. Very, very good guy. And, and he, together with Frank Benson, myself, and Dick Trott, we came up with a plan to, you know, and the financing to remodel the centers, retenant them. If you're remodeling, you can go to the local uh, jurisdictions. You can ask for, a few, you can ask for things you otherwise might not get, you know, little, little, mm-hmm. uh, a few more entitlements about parcels uh, and the same thing from your anchor tenant. So, so we were able to restabilize the foundation, but it took four or five years to do that. So, we, you know, we were very busy doing that, but it was not what I expected, but that that's okay too. You know, life, life you know, you sort of, you play the hand you're dealt. You we're good people to work with. My father was still alive, very fun to be with. And and I had had an awkward relationship with him when I was, uh, you know, in high school. I think a lot of that just because I was an adolescent and, you know, and adolescent boys are not the easiest people to deal with. So, uh, but I'd, I'd matured and so had he. And we had, uh, I'm thrilled that I came back because I had uh, six, six or seven years with him that I otherwise wouldn't have had that was something I look back on fondly. So you start to restructure, you know, both the condition and, and the tenets of the assets and grow the organization in a way that you feel is sustainable and the right path for the future. How do things continue to progress? What are the other milestones along the way that really stick out? I mean, there, there's a lot of years between now and then. So what sticks out the most to you in terms of those inflection points that, that really created the organization and what it is today? There are a couple of them, and, and uh, the key inflection point was a realization that my cousin Frank and I real came to once we'd sort of rebuilt the foundation. It's like, what do we do from here now? We're, we're a family company. We're hierarchically managed. Frank and I were in the office every day. We ran the company. But what we discovered fairly quickly was that you really couldn't grow the company because you needed two things that were really critical. You needed to source capital 
and you needed more money to source human capital, people. And it turns out that people, nobody really wants to work for a family company if you don't see a, you know, upward career growth pattern, if you don't see a way to learn a lot, you know. So it, it's hard to find somebody to work for a hierarchically managed family company. Equally as important, there were a number, there are, there are six or seven beneficial owners. Uh, the, the, the family assets were owned in a series of family trusts. The trusts have beneficiaries and the beneficiaries all had and uh, had fairly elaborate uh, lifestyles with a high burn rate. And as a con- and there's nothing wrong with that. That's not a value judgment. It's just a statement of fact. As a consequence, it was very difficult to source capital internally. You simply just couldn't build up. It was hard to build up just enough money to do the roofs and 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 uh, repair the parking lots, much less have capital to enter new deals and or build a balance sheet in which you could you could uh, take risk on new deals. So the inflection point was the point at which my cousin and I realized that this isn't working. You know, if we really want to grow, we can poop along and take our paycheck and you know, take a few distributions. We, we, we were both beneficiaries. Uh, and live a good life and take vacations. And that was it. But that wasn't what I wanted and it wasn't what he wanted. So we had to figure out how to recast things. So that's what we did. Uh, We just sat down with a blank sheet of paper and thought about, well, let's just basically, let's start a real estate company. You know, Mm -hmm. let's take the family trust assets, put them off to the side. We will cauterize them and manage them capably to do what what the beneficial owners want them to do is, which is to produce as much revenue as possible. And at the same time, since there are remaindermen beneficiaries, we want to preserve and protect the assets. So, you know, that there's plenty there you know, for the next generation. And we've done that for many years and we've done a good job of it, but that was cauterized and there was very little growth in that portfolio for just that reason. You, know, you, you can't grow something with basically no additional capital. So we then, looked outside and said, we need to source human capital. And it was, to me, you know, looking back, and, and it's almost serendipity or magic how it happened. And, I, you know, to this day, I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world because I got a call from Paul Lukeman, who was a, a good friend, uh, had worked for Dick Soloff. And he said, you know, I'm, I think I want to make a change. Would you like to talk about doing something together? And so... Paul and I talked and set up a partnership and he joined our new company. And within a matter, interestingly, of, I want to say less than 12 months, maybe eight or 10 months, we were joined by Bill Riott, who was a, a, a real estate, who was a, a residential developer. And he was sort of reinventing how he wanted to work in the future. Uh, Steve Dutton, who was a CFO and had uh, been at Deloitte for years, uh, represent, you know, wanted to get into private practice. Tony Martin, who had been with the Ohio Company and had worked with Walmart, uh, came to me and said, you know, m- maybe we can do something. Other. But within 12 months, we had six partners, you know, myself, Frank, Tony, Paul and Bill. And shortly thereafter, maybe uh, I want to say six months we hooked up with Brett Hutchins, who is our now our Sarasota partner. And Brett had been a Walmart developer and a friend of, of Tony's. Tony financed all of his projects. And he wanted to get back in the retail development business. And so Brett joined us as a partner. And within 12 months, we had seven partners. And then about a year later, John Carr joined us. He had been with W. Lyman Case. And then they were bought by 
I want to say, uh, what's the bank? Fifth Third. And then a, that's, of course, a kiss of death for a mortgage company when the bank owns you. So he wanted to get out and, and he said, let's just let's start a new mortgage company, which is what we did. OK, and he ran that. So here we are fast forward, not quite 30 years, maybe 28 years. All of our partners, all of those same people are still together, which I consider it is is beyond shocking, you know, that you know, mm -hmm. normally in a, in a relatively unstable business that has a lot of ins and outs and a lot of people with a lot of egos, you know, we've all managed to stay together. We've managed to subordinate our egos. And, you know, we're all now, I'm 76. My other partners are between 65 and 70, 71. So, we, you know, we're, we're aging out right now, but it's been a great run. And, and to this day, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, except that it did. It was pure serendipity. And that was the foundation of what I'll call Newcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, like, that's exactly the question I had in my mind is, you know, how, what, what were the keys to keeping all of those? Because it sounds like all of these, you know, all of your partners are very successful and probably have a lot of great ideas and directions that they want to go in. So how do you, how do you manage that throughout the years and what were the keys to keeping the company together and all the partners together in your, your opinion? Uh, that's pretty easy. The, the John B. McCoy gave me some of the best business advice ever. And he said, always associate yourself with people smarter than you. And that in my case was pretty easy. So these are all very, very smart people, but they all are like me in the sense that they're willing to subordinate their ego to the common cause. We very quickly developed a culture that it's one for all and all for one. And you simply can't, you can't be part of this team if, if, you're, if you're looking out for yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and over 28 years, I'm gonna guess 27, 29, whatever it is, we've never taken a vote. We've operated on consensus and we've done deals based on consensus. And if one person doesn't want to do it, you better have a good reason why you don't want to do it. But yeah, and 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 we have some, you know, it isn't sitting down and singing kumbaya all the time. And there's a there's a lot of blood on the floor when we talk through deals and opportunities, but but we always reach a consensus and we don't move forward without one. So so that's one of the I think it's just the simple three musketeers culture of one for all and all for one. We're in this together and you know. They're going to be tough times and we'll work through it and they're going to be great times and we'll take advantage of it when they when they come around. But you, you name, name a real estate company that has seven or eight or nine people that have stuck together that long and, and you can't think of one really. Right. JME Hospitality, your hospitality design partner. JME Hospitality works with food service facility owners, operators, and development pros to improve the overall efficiency of customer experience and the profitability of customer operations. JME has been consulting in the hospitality operations space for over 45 years, providing solutions for schools and universities, healthcare institutions, hotels, resorts, and more. They also have extensive experience working within the design, construction, and manufacturing sectors. JME specializes in helping with a variety of different problems, including the COVID effect, redesigning the customer experience to protect their clients and the public during the pandemic. JME is passionate about serving the community you live in. They're doing this by supporting cancer research as well as youth outreach. 
And JME is offering a free consultation to all Conquering Columbus listeners. Just visit jmehospitality.com. That's jmehospitality.com. And mention the Conquering Columbus podcast to receive your free consultation. So reflecting on what you called Newcastle, you know, what was the strategy there? You mentioned the structure and, and the way that you guys cauterize the old assets, but what was the strategy going into the new cast thinking about how we're going to create a business that's differentiated and, and what value that we're going to provide? You know, I, I'd like to tell you that we thought it through, that we had a business plan, that we had a 12-page presentation. We had none of the above. We were just a bunch of guys that wanted to do deals. And it's that simple. You know, let's, let's, let's get in a deal flow. Let's try to think about what we do next. We have, we had then and we have now what my wife calls in a hall, H-A-L-L, a hall culture. You know, and let's just walk up and down the hall. Let's talk to each other. Let's think creatively. Let's, you know, what do we do next? And pretty soon, you know, in our business, it, it comes down to a lot of relationships. And and it comes down to relationships and reputation. And, you know, hopefully we've, we've established a reputation for, you know, obviously, integrity and doing what we say we're going to do and that sort of thing. But we've also developed a reputation that, you know, we can get things done. And we're going to work hard and we'll get them done. And so as a consequence, the deal flow starts. You know, you start to get a call from people and say, I've got a piece of ground that I think is a good piece of apartment ground. What do you think? You know, or, you know, this this old shopping center I own is functionally obsolete and I don't know what to do with it. But what do you think? Would you like to buy it sort of thing? So, you know, so it sort of starts that way. And and um, I will tell you that, uh, you know, we did not start out with any any specific plan. We just were a bunch of guys. Uh, you know, and Linda joined us late, later. Linda is the head of our operation. She's one of our younger partners. She's probably in her early 50s now. Uh, but at the time, we were we were all, you know, we we're just six guys trying to do deals. Well, it undoubtedly worked out for the best and it worked out really well, um, just yeah. following that free-flowing path. But then fast forward to today and looking at, you know, obviously real estate has taken its its ups and downs like any other market over the last several years. Um, but in particular, commercial real estate today facing COVID has, has really taken a struggle. What's the outlook on where we're at today? Does it reflect anything on similar to what happened in 08 or is it a completely different situation? And what do you see happening moving forward? Is it going to change the strategy of Casto as it sits today? Uh, a good question, and the answer is yes, it is different than 08, and yes, it is. we will change our strategy or, or have changed our strategy. First of all, 08 was a classic financial crash, and uh, that was the most frightened I've ever been, you know, in terms of uh, our business and moving forward. We got through that, and it was it took us through at least two or three years to, you know, get back to a normal, stabilized, you know, uh, business where we could actually start to grow it a little bit and manage it. But so 08 was very different. This pandemic is quite a bit different. Uh, it's unpredictable, came out of the blue. It's really a black swan event. Uh, and the very first thing we did back in March, again, it's one for all, all for one. And that culture permeates the entire company, all 300 people. Uh, and the very first thing we did when when it became clear that this was something we didn't know how it was going to end. We knew how it began. I called together our all of our partners, our leadership team, and I just said, guys, you know, you know, we all take nice compensation, nice salaries. You know, I said, we just have, that has to stop right now. We, we have to send a message that we're all in this together. And starting then, and, and we haven't picked it up again, you know, we haven't taken a paycheck. And so 
that quickly worked its way through the organization uh, and became clear that we, we really meant what we said. We we're all on this together and hopefully we'll get back, you know, back to going again. Right now, our business is, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to say this because I don't want to, I don't want to tempt the real estate gods to slam me. Our business is as good as it's ever been. I mean, it is, you know, we have our challenges with this pandemic and we're sorting through them. And back in March and April, we could not see light at the end of the tunnel, but now we can. And so, you know, we did our best to sort of hang in there March, April, May, and June. And now I think, you know, at least for a substantial part of the business, we see clarity that we're going to be okay moving forward. Later on, we'll talk about some of the real challenges that that this pandemic has created for our portfolio. But what you've asked is, is how has it changed what we're doing, you know? And, and I don't think the pandemic has changed the retail environment so much as has uh, other structural things, uh, specifically the change in the distribution channel with Amazon and you know, the, the pandemic has accelerated that, you know, I mean, we were dealing before with the, the change in the distribution channel, the lack of retail opportunities, or not the lack of, but the the slow growth of retail opportunities uh, and the changes occasioned by the change in the distribution channel. And so, so how do you deal with that? You know, we have a substantial retail portfolio of, let's say, 30 million feet. You can't just get rid of that overnight or change it overnight. But what you can change, and we pride ourselves on being pretty nimble. You know, let's take a Best Buy, for example. In the old days, they they, they wanted a sort of 68,000 feet. Now they want one of 36,000 feet. So, you know, it's an opportunity to to uh, give them what they want, take their store back. You got to find a tenant to replace that. That takes relationships. It takes capital. And, you know, so it's, it's certainly keeping us busy. But I think when you shake it all out, we end up right back where we started. We're just treading water, you know, by the time you get done with all that nimble replacement, but at least we're back where we started. It's, it's, it's been an interesting challenge, this whole pandemic thing and, and the whole retail portfolio. But what we've done is we're just not doing that much more retail. We, we used to do a lot of retail development. We're blessed in that most of our portfolio is grocery anchored centers, which have survived the pandemic just fine. You know, grocery stores are doing fine. Drug stores are doing fine. It wasn't the exciting, you know, I used to think that I missed the boat when we, we didn't do a lot of malls. We did one mall that we sold years ago. And I always thought, God, I just missed that boat, you know, should have done it, you know, way back when, but I was busy doing other things and that ship sailed by. Again, better to be lucky than smart hmm. because, you know, malls are, with, with a few exceptions, are just true dinosaurs right now. And the favored uh, product type is grocery anchored centers. And that's what most of our portfolio is. We'll, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the other product types that we have in retail and what the challenges are. But um, anyway, that's that. But what have we done? So we're not doing that much retail. I'm, I'm trying to think of the retail we're doing. We're doing a mixed-use retail project in Tampa that is very sexy, high energy. We're doing the retail portion of it. It's anchored by Whole Foods, REI, all kinds of sexy restaurants. And that's a lot of fun. And we got that started before the pandemic hit. Most of the leasing was done. And that's gonna open here this spring on time on schedule. Uh, and and I think we're, we're just fine there. I'm not sure we would have started that, you know, in in May, but we were well underway, you know, when the pandemic hit. And, and I think, you know, we're gonna be okay there. But what we've done is uh, give you an example here in Lakewood Ranch, which is north uh, suburban Sarasota. We had a 50 acre site that was going to be almost all retail. And 
You know, I, I think we'll maybe do 20 acres of retail, mostly credit tenants, uh, a credit grocery that we're working with, uh, you know, a bunch of out parcels, you know, nothing very exciting, but we're doing three medical buildings. And uh, so we, we've sort of, we've sort of shifted our focus to medical, to multifamily. We're doing uh, 11 multifamily projects right now uh, in various markets. Uh, and that still is a very good product type. And we've got a team that is really uh, just exceptionally accomplished in, 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 in that product type. Uh, and what we don't do with, with a few exceptions, we do, we, we've got a couple of projects we're doing that are, that I would call plain vanilla suburban uh, multifamily projects. But most of what we do is a high barrier to entry product that it either is a historic rehab or it's an urban setting that requires all kinds of complexity and that will, if the market ever does trend down, those are the units that will rent first. Yeah. And so, you know, specifically I'm thinking of the, you know, the project we did in Franklinton in Columbus uh, across the river from downtown, we took an old uh, warehouse uh, shoe factory uh, right at Maine in front and converted that to ultra luxury rental units. We took the old, original South High School, then Barrett Middle School down uh, just off, off uh, Schiller Park in German Village and converted that to a couple hundred uh, retail units. So those have been fun projects, but they're incredibly complicated, incredibly difficult. They involve the use of historic tax credits, and, and a lot of folks can't do that. But you end up with a product that whatever happens, it's going to rent first. You know, so so we, we, we think that's a good defensive play, but you have to be good at what you do. You have to understand what you're doing and you have to have a really, really good team that's a lot smarter than me You know, that knows how to do that. We're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Working from home is full of challenges. Online school from home can be even tougher. Don't add to the frustrations with no hot water for showers or laundry or cooking. Clog drains in your kitchens or bathrooms. You have enough going on at home right now. You know who to call. Let the pros at the Waterworks handle all your plumbing and drain cleaning. Call 614-25-DRAIN today. What sounds interesting is, is unlike a way, and again, I'll say this with a caveat that I'm fairly ignorant on commercial real estate development investing, but the value of the products and the way you describe it, those being the assets don't seem like, you know, they haven't decreased like in 08, but just the tenants that you're placing in them, you've been more strategic finding people who are less impacted, such as healthcare and food service, food service meaning like groceries to, to occupy those and then that stabilized the company. Does that sound like a good synopsis? You've made a very good point uh, in the sense that the very first thing we did in March and April in our rental portfolio was look at every single tenant and what job they had and who was most at risk for you know being laid off, not paying rent, who was in healthcare, which you're not going to get laid off. If you're in food service, you might be. And so and so those are the people that were at risk that we had to work with. We had to understand we might have X percentage of, of a certain project uh, uh, was going to be challenged in terms of rent paying. And, and we had to figure out how to deal with that. And so far, we've been very, very fortunate in the Malta family. Our collection rate has been around 98%. So there's been no fall off at all. Now, mind you, a lot of that is a function of the federal government and, and all of the 
the benefits and the unemployment comps have been paid when that when and if that peels off here in January, I think we're going to see some fall off and we'll we'll have to deal with that. The retail environment is very, very different. Uh, and when the pandemic hit, we we immediately it was clear to us that a large retailer was simply just not going to pay rent. And so uh, and then we had to pay our mortgage. And <laughs> that's always, you know, it's sort of, you know, the knee, knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. And we were able to quickly work out with all of our major, with virtually every tenant. We set up a whole team that did nothing but call every tenant, talk to them about what they wanted, were they going to pay rent? If they weren't going to pay rent, would they want to talk about a deferment, rent deferment? And so within a matter of maybe two weeks, we'd talk to everybody, thousands of tenants. And then once we had a sense of what was happening and who was willing to work with us, and with very few exceptions, most tenants understood that they had to work with us and that, that they had to eventually pay the rent, but maybe they couldn't pay it right now. We then talked to all our lenders and with the same message, we can't pay our mortgage right now, but let's figure out a deferment and maybe things will turn around here and in July or August or September, we can pay our mortgage. Uh, and interestingly, the whole process happened in a friendly basis. There was no table pounding, you know, uh, and so, which was a surprise to me. But uh, here we are a little later on. The tenants who had rent deferment are now paying double rent. The lenders understand that they're getting paid double mortgage payments. You know, that's an oversimplification. There was a lot more complexity to it than that. But it also, it was a wonderful, you know, it, it, there was a silver lining because it gave us a chance to talk to all our tenants. You know, uh, we, we talked to them anyway. We tried to maintain communications, but it was a chance to really talk heart to heart about what do you need and what do we need. In a lot of cases, what we needed from a lot of these, especially larger tenants, if we're going to refinance the center, if you had two years remaining on your lease and you had a 10-year renewal option and you're doing well, the chances are you're going to exercise that anyway. But it helps us if you exercise it now because we, we may have to refinance in a year and it's nice to go to the lender saying you got a 10-year uh, ten-year lease with you know whoever you know, you know whether it's Best Buy or Michaels or you know whatever, and most of them were very receptive. You know they said you know we're going to exercise it anyway. We're going to get a rent different. Let's just renegotiate the whole thing. You know, and so that's what we did. And uh, so so I think in retrospect we came out ahead, mm -hmm. uh, but took a lot of work and a lot of conversation. And in a business like ours, which is a relationship business and a people business, it was a great chance to talk to everybody. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Don. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I've noticed about just the pandemic and the whole situation, right? You mentioned that you were kind of surprised how smoothly everything went. But I think that, you know, it kind of shows something that I believe is fundamental about people, which is when the going gets tough, we tend to choose to work with each other rather than to be confrontational. Right. Um, it, wasn't like it, was, it wasn't like there was a lot of choice either. Right. So. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I literally don't have any money, so you guys are going to have to figure something out. Um <laughs> Yeah, I think a good place to kind of talk a little bit about what do you see in the future, right? Long-term goals, concerns in the next three to five years. What do you, what are you keeping an eye on, and and you know what are your goals for the long term with Casto? You mentioned that a lot of the team is kind of getting to that point where they're maybe starting to think about moving on and transitioning. So what what does that plan look like? Well, long-term goals are again related to organizational structure, product type. What are we doing, and specifically. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we've been dealing with, and we've dealt with it for a couple of years now, is succession. You know, we're all, would like to think we're not moving out, but biology is biology. And, you know, we are moving out whether we want to or not. And so we have to make sure we've got a, a good team in place to 
to succeed us. And I, I look back at a conversation I had with Tony Martin 25 or six years ago when we were talking and he said, you know, what do you, what do you want to do? We we're just making deals at that time. He said, what do you, what do you, what's your long-term goal? What do you really want to do? And the answer was pretty quick. I said, you know, I wanted to keep doing deals like I'm doing now, but I really want to build an organization that survives me. And I'm thrilled that I think we've done that. You know, we, I look at our succession planning. We have a young fellow who's just turned 40, who runs our multifamily business, is exceptionally qualified. We've got a young, young kids who are coming up in the retail business that work under Paul Lutman. We have succession planning in place and they've absorbed our culture. They've been around for eight or 10 years. They know what the culture is. They know it's one for all, all for one. And subordinate your ego, do deals and have fun. Have fun are the key words. Have fun, have fun. If, if you're not having fun, you don't do the deal, okay? Except for 2008, there was no fun there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I always said I'd retire if, if I if I stopped having fun. And in 2008, I stopped having fun and, and I couldn't retire because mm-hmm. there were too many fires to put out. But anyway, uh, but w- what we're doing is, is succession planning. So we have the good people, the really qualified people who are in place. And to make sure that they're, the, the structure is there to support them, We've taken our management company and we are we are we have figured out a way to devolve ownership of the management company to those people. Mm-hmm. And so they are now managing the company. They own the manage the overall company. They manage the company. And as deals come along in which they would like ownership, we've had ownership over the years in various deals we've done that involves the use of capital and risk. And so we've come up with different structural ways to make sure they're included in ownership, either through an opportunity to invest, which is a simple way, or if they don't have the capital, but they're a sweat equity way to do it. So so these people, whether it's a Sarasota office, the Raleigh office, or the Columbus office, are owners in the projects and they're owners in the entity. And so they have, you know, interests are completely aligned. Other things we're working on right now, I mentioned we're doing 11 multifamily projects, you know, in terms of product type, that is a, a shift to, to that product type. The other thing we're doing that's a lot of fun, and again, it's just how, you know, it's serendipity, uh, how deals happen and how things grow. You know, about three years ago, we had an opportunity to acquire uh, a, a small motel here on Siesta Key, okay, which is, you know, was a, maybe a three motels that were a total of 80 units and, you know, it, took some capital and a little bit of investment and we had a, an operating partner that understood that business, you know, and so we said, okay, yeah, we'll do it. Okay. Fast forward. And we got so excited about what we're doing. We got excited about how you can take this little crappy old concrete block hotel and you can, you can basically put more than lipstick on the pig. I mean, we totally remodeled everything. We converted two units into one larger unit. We put nice roofs on it. We, I mean, this is now you want, it's like a Key West Key West Hotel, beautiful. We started buying lots and said, we, we, we realized that there was an area of Siesta Key that entitled, uh, there's only this one small area, it's about a three block area in which you're allowed to rent by the day or by the week. And so it's like, you know, and here it is close to Siesta Village, which is the cutest little sort of fun village. And it's close to the best, one of the 10 best beaches in the world. And every single home or hotel unit in that area was uh, at best a C minus. It was just crap. 
And so we thought there's an opportunity here if, in fact, we can buy these lots or homes or hotel units and turn them around into something that is A plus, A minus, whatever. So fast forward on both Lido, we've moved it to Lido Key now as well. And Lido Key, which is just south, and Siesta Key, strike that, just north. And Siesta Key, we now have about 45 eight bedroom homes that are ultra luxury that rent for very high numbers. They're, they're what you want to rent. If you have your family wedding or a family, you know, you wouldn't buy it and live in it, you know, but they're fabulous. And the hotel units are great. And we're just busy buying more lots and more homes. All of a sudden it started with sort of a, what your, your boss, Jeff Wilkins calls, or your, your colleague, Jeff Wilkins calls screw you money. You know, we had a little bit of money and we thought, well, let's invest it in this. And, and, what the hell, we'll see where it heads. Well, where it headed was where we didn't expect, which was one, we're we're involved in a business that is, now we're creating close to an effective monopoly, a legal Mm -hmm. monopoly, because we've we've really been the first mover, we had first mover advantage, and we now own maybe 30% of all the units uh, in this this area of Siesta Key. Uh, And more importantly, we're having fun. Yeah. So it's one of those great deals that, that's been successful. And even during the pandemic, it surprised us. The government shut us down for eight weeks mm-hmm. uh, and then opened back up. And the business is off the charts because people now want a place to go. If they're going to quarantine, they want to quarantine someplace where it's nice. You know, So so the hospitality in, industry is on its is at 30 percent. We're we're at 98 percent in terms of occupancy. So it's it's been an interesting, interesting ride. And we're having a lot of fun. But. It isn't where I thought I'd be three years from now ago. You know, right. you know, so it gives you, it's sort of a fun example of, you know, when you're just chasing deals and having fun, you know, stuff happens that you don't expect. So again, that was not part of a 80 page business plan. Just, okay. <laughs> right. Well, Don, I think that's a great place to kind of pivot and transition towards our last question of the show. It's, it's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus. And that theme is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, what do you think of when you hear it and, and how does it apply to your life and career? You know, it's interesting. Um, in my life, I, well, first of all, in your outline, you had, you, had, you had suggested that was something you might want to talk about. And it reminded me of one of my favorite quotes. And I'm going to read it to you because it, it, it sort of relates to that. It's a George Bernard Shaw quote. And it reads, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. Colon, the unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. And I always thought that was, was interesting, but, it, but it, it suggests that you need to be unreasonable, you need to be out on the edge, uh, and you need to live uncomfortably. And so I've done that most of my life, uh, and I've also lived unexpectedly. You know, the, the places I've been and the things I've done aren't where I thought I would be when I started out. I thought I was going to be an academic or a water law lawyer, and none of those happened, okay? Uh, but what I've done has been an enormous amount of fun. Uh, but, you know, what? You, when you live on the edge, and you, first of all, if you're in the real estate business and you've been in it as long as I have, you are living uncomfortably every day. Uh, it's just the nature of the beast. You know, you don't know when your tenants are going to stop paying rent. You don't know when the world's going to change. You don't, you know, this stuff happens and you have to be nimble. You have to deal with it. Even in the best of, of circumstances, we take financial risk. And it's, I wouldn't want to be in a deal in which I didn't have some financial risk because that sort of puts you on the edge and it makes you focus on what you're doing. Mind you, we think we manage risk pretty carefully and, and what we do is manage risk, but there's still risk there. And occasionally we've been 
you know, we've, the risk has bitten us. Okay. And I, I, we don't have time today. I can tell you war stories that would make your, your toenails curl, but you know, I've always lived on the edge, whether it's business personally, you know, my hobby is mountain climbing and I've been, you know, whether it's been the South pole climbing, the North pole dog sledding, Himalayas climbing, you know, uh, I, I do, I go to what my wife likes to call the blank spaces on the map, you know, whether it's New Guinea, the Arctic, the Antarctic, you know, you just, you name it. I don't want to go where somebody's been before, you know, so, so that's living on the edge and that's been a lot of fun over the years. And I, at age 76, as soon as the pandemic lifts and I can get on an airplane again, I'm going to go somewhere and go climbing again. But uh, right now I'm, uh, right now I'm, all I do is I get up every morning at sunrise and take a five mile run. That's that's the most exercise I can get. And that's living on the edge for me right now, but um, it's pretty quiet. Well, Don, that's a great answer and, and really appreciate you taking the time to join us and, and share your story and talk a little more about Casta today. So thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And everybody, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Don Casto and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. 